This morning we continue in our sermon series, which is called Unfolding Jesus. You may remember that last fall we started our way through some of the the things that Jesus said about himself, about who he was, where he came from, why he came in John's gospel. We, we walked through chapters one through three in the fall, and last Sunday we picked up where we left off with Rob's message about the Samaritan woman. So as you may know, John's gospel begins with, with a prologue. His biography of Jesus starts from this incredible perspective where John begins his biography with these amazing, astonishing claims about who Jesus is and where he came from. And then beginning in, if you've never read those 18 verses before, just check out of my sermon right now, pull up John chapter one and read the first 18 verses. They are stunning. But then beginning in verse 19 in chapter one, John shifts from a heavenly plane to an earthly plane and he allows us to begin to walk along behind Jesus and to listen in on the things he says, to watch the things that he does as he unfolds his own description of who he is and what the nature of his power and authority is and why he's here. All of us have some starting view of Jesus, some picture that we have in our head of who Jesus is. Who is he? What was he up to? Where did he come from? Why did he come? Maybe you got your picture from your parents or, or from the surrounding culture or maybe from church or from things that you've read. How do you view Jesus? What is your starting point picture of who Jesus is? What do you believe about who he is and where he came from and why he was here? We want this series to be an opportunity to open up your understanding of who Jesus is. We, so we follow along with Jesus. As we begin to take in a wider and wider and then a deeper and deeper view of Jesus, adding to our initial understanding so that more and more we see him completely for who he is. So what do we do when we encounter a mystery? Well, you bring in a detective to help you pull all the clues together and make sense of them and to solve the mystery in some, well, some way. And who better to do that than Sherlock Holmes, right? Sherlock was a master at finding clues and making sense of them. So we come to this morning with our tools in hand. Why don't you all put on your Sherlock hats, take out your magnifying glasses, and we're going to walk our way through this passage that begins at the end of chapter 4 and walks all the way through chapter 5 and see what we can do to understand this passage. Holmes, I don't remember. What is it that comes after K? Why, that's elementary, my dear Watson. Thank you for the two of you who laughed at that. That popped into my head during sermon prep at some point. Um, sorry, some of you 10 minutes from now are going to go, oh, that wasn't even worth thinking about. So before we go on, just one thought about solving mysteries. A typical mystery that we might read, like a, a Sherlock Holmes 
adventure or a Poirot case or a Miles Breeden conundrum is really just a puzzle. It's just a problem that we solve. There are pieces that are missing, like in a jigsaw puzzle, and the goal is to race to find them all and fit them all together before the author does it for us. But when it comes to Jesus, we really are considering a mystery rather than a puzzle. The goal isn't to solve the problem of Jesus, to find some tidy explanation that that helps us understand what's being said and then kind of move on from him and find another puzzle. The goal is to grow in our awe and wonder and in our worship as we grow in our understanding. Because you know this, the more we know of Jesus, the more we realize there is still to come to know about Jesus. And that is the sign of a true mystery rather than just a puzzle. It's not any fun to go back and reread a mystery, you know that. But it remains captivating for us as we keep going back and rereading the Gospels and enter more and more deeply into the mystery who Jesus is. So we'll walk through this passage and we'll look for clues, seeing if they can help us solve some of the puzzles of understanding the passage of Scripture. But we especially are wanting to let them lead us deeper and deeper into the mystery of Jesus himself. This one-of-a-kind human being with a -a one-of-a-kind relationship with his Heavenly Father. And what the implications are for us as human beings. I've been reading a fascinating book about prayer by a Swiss theologian whose name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. And he says this, contemplation, by which he means a life of humble and prayerful intimacy with God, starts at the point where the mystery begins to reveal itself in all its vast proportions in an astonishment which reaches to the very roots of our being, a trembling awe at the thought of God's nature made known in Christ. He says, in the Gospels, anyone who encounters Christ is impelled either to worship him or to pick up stones with which to stone him. Evidently, the Gospels do not foresee any other kind of response. So let's open up these verses and be prepared to be astonished. I'm just going to walk you through from the beginning to the end. We'll be like Sherlock, discovering the clues along the way, trying to make sense of them, and then seeing if we can fit all the pieces together when we arrive at the conclusion. Beginning in verse 43 of John chapter 4. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. Went on from where? Well, a good detective always takes a look at the surrounding setting, and a good detective of Scripture always looks at the protext, goes back and looks at what comes right before. So Jesus went on from where? If we flip back to the earlier part of John chapter 4 and verse 3, we see that he has come to Galilee by way of Samaria. And if we look back a bit further, we discover that Jesus is returning specifically from Jerusalem, where we find him in chapters 2 and 3 in John's Gospel. So, what do we know about the significance of these places? Well, Jerusalem, we know, among other things, to be the spiritual capital of the entire region. It was where the Jewish faith was headquartered, and it had all of the highest religious leaders living and serving there. And Samaria, what do we know about Samaria and the Samaritans, well, it was looked down on by earnest Jews as the land of compromised, mixed-race heretics who had completely disqualified themselves from a place in the kingdom of God. And what about Galilee? Well, Galilee was seen as kind of a backwater place, home to unsophisticated fishermen and carpenters with its own thick country accent. 
It was also a region known for its spiritual laxness because of the influence of several nearby pagan cities and also the influence of the not very Jewish Herod Antipas who ruled there. Verse 44, Jesus himself had said that a prophet is not honored at his own hometown, in his own hometown. And yet the Galileans welcomed him for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and they had seen everything that he did there. And as he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned water into wine. Now, before we go on, just notice that comment that John inserts here, the one where Jesus says, a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Doesn't that kind of come in from left field? Especially because this story, as we've heard, goes on to talk about what a warm welcome he receives as he comes into Galilee. I think we'll discover that there's significance to that phrase that John leads with in this passage. Picking up in verse 46, there was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. We don't know exactly what this man's role was. It's been translated royal officer, nobleman, king's official. What we do know is that he was connected to the court of King Herod Antipas, who was the ruler over first century Galilee. And this is the man who divorced his own wife so that he could marry his brother's wife and who beheaded John the Baptist when he called that arrangement into question. His court was not exactly known for its faithfulness to biblical morals or beliefs. So it's safe to say that this man, while influential, would not have been held in high regard. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. And Jesus asked, will you... Now, it's important to notice that this word you is in the plural. We don't have a way of knowing that in our English translation. But it's very important to recognize that. He's not just speaking to this official. Will you, the Galileans, will you, the Jewish people, will you, the world, never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. And then Jesus told him, go back home your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said, and he started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was indeed alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to feel better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. And then the father realized that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. And this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Words that are repeated often are good clues to the significance of a story. Did you happen to notice any repeated themes in the passages we've gone along so far? The word live and the word believe are both repeated three times. That might just prove worth our noticing as we go along. Well, before we go any further, let me just pause here on this last line. Verse 54, Jesus steps in here as the biographer, and he makes a comment that should just stop us in our tracks. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Second and sign, what is he getting at here? Well, if you flip back a page or two, you'll find the mention of the first sign in John chapter 2, verse 11, at the end of the story about Jesus turning water into wine. It says that was the first of the miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. 
And by doing so, he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. If you were here when we covered that passage last fall, you may remember that that miracle ends up being nothing less than an announcement that God's long-promised king has finally arrived in the person of Jesus. He has come to usher in the long-hoped-for kingdom of God. Well, as we talked about last fall, a sign is not just any ordinary miracle, as if you could talk about any miracle as being ordinary. But a sign is a miracle that points to something else. It has a, a second and deeper meaning to it. As the first sign showed us, it is something that reveals more of Jesus to us and what it means for us to put our faith in him. So what is this? In what way is this miracle a sign? What is, is, is it the sign of? What is the deeper meaning that it's speaking to? Well, let's see if we can find some more clues as we go along that will help us to answer that question. I think that we'll find that it's pretty central to the whole passage that we're looking at this morning. So chapter 5, picking up in verse 1, afterwards Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Oh, that's interesting. Now here we are back in Jerusalem again, back at the headquarters of the Jewish faith, the place where you would expect a warm welcome of the Messiah. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the Pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Now, this is a pool that was believed uh, by some in a superstitious way to have healing powers in its waters whenever they began to stir or move. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. And one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and he knew he'd been ill for such a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Well, I can't, sir. The sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. And Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, well, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. But the man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him again in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. And then the man went and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So up to this point in our passage, Jesus has had key encounters with three very different people, but all three of whom have one very important thing in common and not the thing that we might expect. First, a Samaritan woman who Rob taught us about last week, a woman of sketchy morals and sketchy religious credentials with no societal standing, but who, interestingly enough, ends up believing in Jesus. Then, a Galilean royal official, an elite and presumably very wealthy man who serves in the exceedingly unpopular Herodian courts, who has no obvious Jewish faith and who may be or may as well be a pagan, but also who, interestingly enough, ends up believing in Jesus together with his whole family. 
And this superstitious paraplegic from the Jewish capital city, a poor, abandoned outcast who occupies the very bottom of the pile of society, but who also, interestingly enough, ends up being healed by Jesus and invited by Jesus to turn his life around, to center it on Jesus. And then who begins to turn and tell others about Jesus? And then we have a fourth encounter, this time finally with the Jewish establishment, with the Jewish religious leaders. How will they respond? Verse 16, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So then the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. Now, before we go on, in the light of what we've just read, I wonder if we now have enough information to be able to answer what sort of sign the healing of the official's son was. What was the deeper reality that that miracle revealed about Jesus and about belief in him? This passage began, you remember, with a comment about a prophet not being honored, but being rejected in his own hometown. And then it tells a tale of three outsiders to the religious establishment who were treated by Jesus like insiders. All three were desperate people who found what they longed for in Jesus. And then it told the tale of a group of insiders who treated Jesus like he was an outsider. Religious leaders who thought they had no need of him at all and who refused to find in Jesus anything but a problem to be dealt with. I wonder if this second sign might be understood to mean something like this. Jesus is prepared to receive all who are prepared to receive him. But not all who should be prepared to receive him do. It's not about your spiritual credentials. That gives you no special footing before God. It's about his credentials, who he is, where his authority comes from. And what that says to us and means for us about our relationship with him. So what are Jesus's spiritual credentials? Who is this guy who speaks a word and restores wayward women, forgiving their sins, folding them back into his love, who speaks a word and heals dying boys and brings them back to life, who speaks a word and heals hopeless men who've been paralyzed and lain isolated and alone and hopeless and in despair for 40 years. Who is this guy? Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us exactly who he is. Verse 17 Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. And the religious leaders who rightly understood Jesus to be claiming a unique relationship of equality with God will have none of it. Just in case they aren't clear about what he is claiming, Jesus spells it out now. In the next 12 verses, see if you can put your finger on three ways that Jesus claims that he is, in fact, equal to God. Beginning in verse 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the son, or the father loves the son 
and shows him everything that he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. And then you will truly be astonished. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given the son absolute authority to judge so that everyone who will honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son is certainly not honoring the father who sent him. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. And those who have done good will rise in, to experience eternal life. Those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as the Father tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me and not my own will. Did you hear the three claims that Jesus made to being equal to God? First, he claims that he is nothing less than the Son of God. In our culture, with all of our emphasis on generational differences, when we talk about being some, someone's son or someone's daughter, we are differentiating ourselves. We are pointing out the fact that we are our own separate person. Think of Dr. Rick's mantra in the, in the progressive life insurance commercials. We are not our parents. But in ancient culture, what was true of the father was true of the son, especially the firstborn son. You were viewed essentially interchangeably. Your father's power was yours. Your father's resources were yours. Your father's reputation was yours. And your name was your father's. And your word was your father's. And your deeds were your father's. So first, Jesus is saying he is God's son. He is doing God's work. Jesus is God speaking, God moving, God acting in this world. If you have seen me, you have seen God. He makes himself equal to God. Did you catch his second claim? He claims that he will judge humanity at the end of the age. There's only one person in the ancient biblical world and and in the Jewish scriptures, who was understood to have the power and the authority to judge humanity at the end of the age. God himself. Genesis 18, 25, Psalm 75, 7, Isaiah 33, 22. And now Jesus claims to have that same authority. This claim would have been like Jesus screaming at the top of his lungs that he was God. And the third claim, did you catch it? Jesus claims that he himself has life-giving power and that through him the Father brings human beings from death to life, <coughs> both now and at the end of the age. Let me grab my water real quick here. Rather dry. All right. <laughs> 
Every Bible-believing person in the ancient world would know that God alone is the source of life. He spoke, and when he spoke, he gave life to his creation. He will speak again, and when he does, he will give eternal life to his people. Genesis 2-7, Job 33-4, Daniel 12-2. And now Jesus claims, in the starkest of terms, to have that same power. So just pause there for a moment. Think of the picture of Jesus that you started with. Do these claims fit with your understanding of who he is and what he does? As you hear Jesus say these things, do you find your knees giving way and your heart being moved to bow and to worship before him? How does your view of Jesus need to be widened and deepened based on what Jesus says to us about himself? Now, it's reasonable that a person hearing Jesus' claims would ask, well, how do we know? How can we be sure? Anybody could claim to be God, right? I mean, there are probably many people in mental health facilities right now who are claiming to be God. How do we know that there's any truth in the claims that Jesus is making? Well, that brings us to the final section of this passage, the last 17 verses of the chapter. And in these verses, Jesus lays out the five different reasons that we can be confident that he is exactly who he claims to be. When he talks about testimony or testifying in these verses, he's talking about what you and I might think of as credentials. And actually, credentials is a perfect translation for this because of the root of it, which means that which helps us to believe or to trust. Jesus is saying that there are five different credentials that he can point to that support the reliability of his claims and give us reason to believe that he is, in fact, who he says he is. See if you can find them as we read through this section. Actually, it doesn't take Sherlock to find them because Jesus is very specific in enumerating them. Let's listen to them as we go through this. Beginning in verse 31. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me. And I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist. And his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses. But I say these things so that you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp. And you were excited for a while about his message. So here's his first credential. John the Baptist, the last in the great line of prophets. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the very end of the Old Testament, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come, carrying out that same role. John, who points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 36, but I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. His teaching, Mark chapter 1, says, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And his miracles, after Jesus cast out an evil spirit, Mark 1, says, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. So his forerunner, his teaching, his miracles, and verse 37, and the father who sent me has te testified about me himself. 
You've never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And you don't have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one that he sent to you. So there's the fourth one, the father's own miraculous testimony about his son. At his baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 11 tells us, a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And then again, at his transfiguration, Luke chapter 17, verse 5 says, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here is the last credential, verse 30. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. The last credential is the testimony of the scriptures. According to Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser, there are at least six direct messianic predictions in the Pentateuch alone, in the five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. That's not to mention 59 other direct messianic prophecies that Kaiser identifies in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures related to every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. The scriptures point to me. The Old Testament requires two or three witnesses to establish the truth of something. In these verses, Jesus offers five convincing credentials, five convincing reasons to believe that he is, in fact, who he claims. John the Baptist, identifying him as the Messiah, the unrivaled authority of his teaching, the unparalleled power that he demonstrates through his miracles, the supernatural testimony of God himself by his spirit, and the witness of the Bible filled from cover to cover with predictions about Jesus. But apart from a few religious leaders like Nicodemus, who open their hearts to Jesus, these religious leaders will have nothing to do with him. A prophet has no honor in his own country. Now Jesus comes back to the theme that has run from beginning to end through this chapter and a half. Belief, receiving Jesus in faith and receiving life. Three different times at the end of chapter four, the belief of the royal official from Galilee is commended. And now three different times at the end of chapter five, the lack of belief on the part of the religious leaders is confronted and condemned. Your approval means nothing to me because I know that you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, then you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Do these words sound at all familiar to you? Jesus finishes his comments to these religious experts with words that sound remarkably like those that we found in the opening prologue in John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. Jesus came into the world that he created. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, but they rejected him. But to all who did believe him and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. 
They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. John chapters 4 and 5 give us the second sign of faith. Have you understood it? Have you taken it to heart? Jesus is prepared to receive all who are prepared to receive him. But not all who should be prepared to receive him do. It's not about your spiritual credentials. That gives you no special footing before God. It's about his credentials, who he is, where his authority comes from, and how we respond to him by faith. Have you recognized him? Are you prepared to receive him, to believe in him, to receive life from him, to honor him, and to fall on your knees and worship him? What is God saying to you this morning? We're going to close, our, our worship team's going to come up. We're going to close in a closing song that really is a prayer. And I invite you to just enter into prayer and a conversation with the Lord now. Jesus stands before us and makes these claims about himself. What is your response?